was Andrew the one that helped you get uh, the podcast back up? Yeah, he did get the podcast. He didn't help me. Don't, he did it. Yeah. So don't don't you think you owe him a dinner for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, he didn't. <laughs> Got him. This is Apologetics Live with Matt Slick and Andrew Rappaport, part of the Christian podcast community. All right. So we are live, Apologetics Live. I am Andrew Rappaport with Striving Fraternity, and we have with us Matt Slick from Karm.org. By the way, before we get started, we should say we are looking for folks who want to try to improve on the introduction music. Um, <laughs> we're going to give away one of Matt's books to uh, to whoever gives the best introduction. So you just need some. Well, it's it's okay. Matt's face isn't on there, so you know he's got the face for radio. Matt Slick, today is a special day for Carm. What is today? I don't know what. <laughs> I love when I set it up for you on a on a tee and you just go, oh. <laughs> Today is the 23rd anniversary of Carm. 23 years ago, I started it. That's not bad. I mean, you're only, what, 25? Yeah, really. Yeah, I, w- I was uh, a diaperinian. That's how I studied. <laughs> <laughs> now, for folks who don't know what a diaperinian is, there there actually is, uh, I got I to gotta look again on Carm. On Carm, you have a, a page for terminology like diaperinian. Yes. Uh, I think it was a slick dictionary. The slictionary. Slictionary. In on karm.org on the slictionary, you can know what a diaperinian is. Also a great thing to do. I actually was thinking of doing this. You have your own insults up there, which is nice. Yeah, I have a an in, how to insult me page. A diaperinian is a person who is overly childish in behavior and action when confronted with truth and logic and throws crud at you instead of dealing with the issues like an adult. There we go. Yeah. Hey, what, uh, before we get started, what mic are you using? I'm using the different one this time. I'm using the uh, uh, Logitech uh, camera. Thing. I can switch it to the headset if you think it's better. Yeah, you probably should. Okay. This thing, because... I mean, although I love when you sound far away. I mean, the further away you sound, the better. But people... We're in New Jersey. I'm in Idaho. I know. I've tried to get as far away as possible. But, you know, I I think there's actually, for some strange reason, we have very crazy listeners. They actually want to hear you. I don't know why. I don't either. My wife even listens to me still. It doesn't make any sense. I think you're still on the other one, though. Yeah, I'm still working on it. I'm going to get okay. the window open and switch, but I can't find it now. <laughs> you have too many, you have way too many windows up. All right. So today's the 23rd anniversary of CARM, which yeah. uh, you kind of had a, a radio show today you were telling me about that went oh, well. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it was a, kind of a, a good show in that uh, there. Now I switched. Sound better? Yes, much. All right. And uh, we had, uh, you know, so it was kind of doctrinal. It was kind of good in that respect. And I enjoy doing that. Put some various topics, uh, you know, I thought was was worth discussing and some stuff. And we had this guy ending up, um, and he wanted me to debate uh, somebody on baptism. And so he actually got the guy he wants me to debate on the phone with him, and I could barely hear him. 
And this guy was telling me how he debated people in 20 denominations. They don't want to call him back. They don't want to talk to him back. And after talking to him, I go, yeah, I could figure out why. You're obstreperous, man. You are annoying. You know, who'd want to deal with you? And uh, so we argued about baptism. And, and uh, he, let's just say he didn't do very well. You know. <laughs> It was fun. Yeah, th- there was something about babies. Yeah, you know, he said baptism is necessary for salvation. If it's necessary, there can't be an exception. So I just, you know, a quick answer, a quick question is, do all babies who die go to hell then? He wouldn't answer the question. Well, you know, if uh, he's going to say that, then, you know, that it's necessary, then all babies have to go to hell who die. That's all. Whether I believe that or not isn't an issue because I don't because we have a, a stalker on the YouTube today who t- to put some stuff in and misrepresented me again, f- completely fails to understand my points. Uh, just, you know, person who just looks for evil and that's all I find. But, um, you know, so, you know, that's just a question I ask people. Oh, does that mean then that all the babies who die go to hell? Is that what you're saying? That's, you'd have to say that. Not what I believe, but you'd have to say that. And uh, he wouldn't answer the question. Then, and he tried to dominate the conversation, which it's my radio show, dude, get a life. And uh, he goes, you answer my question, answer my question. I'm like, eh, brother. That's where you tell him, no. get your own radio show and I'll come on. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> well, so, I, I, you know, that's where the, this is a, allows folks for longer discussions um, for folks who want to get in. If you go to, if you're watching on YouTube, the link to join us is can be found at apologeticslive.com. You can watch it there, but this also plays on YouTube. So sometimes folks are on YouTube, don't know what the link is. The link to join is over at apologeticslive.com. We almost always put it up just before 8 o'clock. I put it up a little bit early today accidentally, and so we got someone already in. So we may start doing that more regularly just so people are in here right away. Before we uh, go to our first strange to say a caller when this they're not actually calling in the first hangout cast. I don't know what we, we should call them, but uh, first visitor, first visitor. There we go. First participant. The participant. Hmm, sounds like a game show. Uh, first set up victim. Well, first questioner, maybe. Oh, or, first question. Okay, that works. Do that one. Uh, so we, I did want to talk to you there. You released finally uh, several well, several wouldn't be the right word, maybe uh, many, many, many articles on annihilationism recently. Yeah. Um, I think, it was, what was the final count of articles that were released this past month? 180. 180 articles on annihilationism. Related to, yes, yeah, some were directly tackling it, but some of them are just research uh, where I, I did a word. Because they would say, you know, for example, they would say uh, the word apolumi, uh, destroy means a certain thing. Um, in fact, their their go to guy, for example, uh, what's his name? Let's see, annihilationism. Uh, Fudge, Edward William Fudge, I believe his name is. Uh, he said that uh, Apolumi mostly refers to death. And and you know, for example, I'd write an article on that, and, and I went through and did a complete analysis on the word death. I mean, a complete analysis on that word in certain verses, and found out wrong and so the analysis of that that word is an article also so it's just where it's analyzed percentages and things like that so uh you know it's there it is i I found out that he doesn't know what he's doing it would be sufficient to say that you have finally annihilated annihilationism i believe i have but (laughs) uh 
I don't believe they have. Like, you know, the word, like annihilation, I literally, for real, like, for example, the word apolumi, 90 occurrences in 84 verses. So I have every single occurrence listed on the website uh, in a table at the bottom of an article. And then what I did was, for example, I would uh, like, uh, let's see, Matthew 2.13, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Well, the object of the destruction is a person, and the meaning is destroy Jesus. But Jesus still exists because of the hypostatic union to destroy him. Well, wait a minute. How can he be destroyed and still live? Because they would say destruction means you don't live anymore, that kind of thing. And then, you know, go to Matthew 10, 28, fear not those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell or soul and body. And um, <clears throat> but it could be continued existence or non-existence because that's what the debate's about. So I just, you know, categorize it. It could be either one. You have to decide. But, you know, you look at how the word destruction has occurred, you know, and so like I have an outline of 17 different contexts accomplishment, continued existence or non-existence, damnation in a spiritual sense, the, the destruction of demons, destroy Jesus, but he'd still be around because hypostatic union, destroy objects uh, that but are still there. Wineskins burst open, they're destroyed, but the wineskin's still sitting there. Um, destroyed spiritually, hinder a person, loss of reward, non-existence. The things that are non-existent, flower, a, a flower that grows, gold, luxurious things, wine. I had the references. These are the things that obviously mean they're non-existent. Uh, it, can, it can mean not remain. Physical death or spiritual death are possible. Physical death is either strongly implied or clearly stated, 23 occurrences of that. Possible non-existence in one reference. Render invalid in one reference. Remove a body part in two occurrences. Unaccounted for loss of an object, eight occurrences, like loss of food, loss of hair, lo lo losing a coin, losing sheep. And that's the word apolumi. So I went through and I would do studies a lot of the, uh, the the substance of those articles are just that, just analysis of words that they say mean certain things. So I went in and started studying. I have a whole bunch of them uh, that I've done on that. So there you go. So you and I were talking because there is something we've seen with different people um, who get into studying one issue. Oh, and yeah. One issue only, and it, it becomes the like. The, really the definition of their life almost. Yeah. That's almost like an idol. Yep. Um, let's kick that back and forth a bit before we, we go to our first questioner. What, it, what do you see as the issue? You know, let's say, let's take, we're talking annihilationism. You and I both have a same concern with some of the folks involved in this. People who otherwise seem to be solid in, in their doctrines, they seem to be. But this is the only thing they work on. And, and as you and I talked about, you end up seeing them associating, partnering with people that are bad. Shouldn't. <clears throat> when you have an ideology above uh, evangelism, above the ex exaltation of Christ, then what happens is you'll often uh, become known just for that one thing. And then you'll defend the one thing and you'll often side with heretics in that one thing and use them as an example of support. So some annihilationists will side with universalists in support or uh, some bad teachers and say, well, they hold this view, too. I'm not going to be careful of guilt by association. But the thing is that, you know, you've got to be careful of who you associate with when you're def defending something. And, you know, it, it reminds me of an article 
Uh, let's see. Uh, pagan. Let's see. I have this now. Greek. B-R-E-E-K. Uh, let's see. So one of the things that they say is is the immortal soul. They say the mortal soul is a, a Greek concept adopted by adopted by the early church. So I went in, I looked at, and I, you know, I found out as an example of something here in that you got to be careful of guilt by association because what they're doing, we on our side as well as their side, we got to be careful of that whole thing because just because they they associate with a with a universalist doesn't mean that their arguments aren't sound. But you got to be careful who you're uh, siding with, because it can affect you never, uh, negatively. And in line of that whole thought, when I did some research, uh, guilt by association, because that's what they're saying a mortal soul is. And guess what I found out? This kind of a shift in the topic a little bit. But guess what I found out? That uh, annihilation of the soul was uh, portrayed by certain Jews. They believed it. The Jews rejected Jesus. Oh, pagan king lost seven sons, as did Job. Um, that's in uh, the Ugaritic stuff. God does battle. Various biblical texts depicting God in Israel and battle with a sea and or dragon have been connected to Mesopotamian uh, mythological motifs. And there's a mountain God, son of God coming in the clouds is in uh, other writings, bodily resurrection in other writings. And that was just some of the stuff I found. And, uh, you know, it, so we got to be careful about, about this guilt by association thing. And the annihilationists will try and say, well, pag it's a pagan philosophy of immortal soul adopted by pagan from pagan stuff. They just say it. Well, wait a minute. There's other things that are similar to pagan stuff that they would hold to as well. Well, why aren't they guilty of that? <clears throat> and so they're inconsistent in how they apply it. So we have to be careful as well when we say that they're guilty of something. But it is a concern if you're going to join up with heretics uh, to support your view. And, and that's an overall concern. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, you know, we see where these guys, I mean, maybe well-meaning at first, but I mean, anytime you focus on one issue and yeah. almost make it an I like how you said it. When you put something over the gospel, when, when I mean, this is a concern I have with some of these people that they'll work with universalists and will sit there and you know, realize that they won't share the gospel with this person, even though they know they need the gospel because, well, we're partners. We got to, th this, whatever our idol is, we got to get that yeah. pushed out. I, you know, I remember with James White was, he debated at G3, a, a Roman Catholic, I think a year and a half ago. And it was interesting because the arguments that the Roman Catholic was making was the arguments, very much the same arguments we hear from uh, our non-Calvinistic friends making similar type arguments um, and the similarity, like people don't even realize like, Hmm, interesting. And there were some that were even trying to promote it against James White, but you know, the Catholic guy, the Christians promoting the Catholic guy because the argument that was being made against Calvinism. And it was kind of just an interesting thing that you'd have people that claim to be believers working with uh, the Roman Catholics just because they don't like the Calvinism argument. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're, we've talked about this before. Um, Leighton Flowers is an anti-Calvinist and he has an anti-Calvinism ministry. Why? Why? Calvinists, they teach the sovereignty of God, the promotion of the gospel. And but his thing is anti-Calvinism. And he and I had a debate last week. I don't think he did all that well. And I thought there was some stuff I answered that I asked that he couldn't answer, couldn't deal with. And uh, there are some things I know he can't deal with. 
because of his position. Well, okay, whatever. But uh, the thing is, um, why is he known for that one thing? Because Calvinists are Christians. Why isn't he, uh, you know, as the, what does it say? People, I got to find that verse. They were speaking, but they weren't part of us about the gospel. And we hindered them. And Jesus says, no, don't hinder them. Because he's, you know, for me against me. This is exactly what Leighton's doing. He's, he's hindering Calvinists and Calvinism and working against, and we're trying to preach the gospel. And now, instead of going out and doing apologetics against unbelievers and false doctrine, I have to, for example, deal with this. So he's taking me away and others away from doing that kind of a thing and having to defend in Calvinism. So he's actually causing problems, and he should repent of that. Uh, likewise, some of the, like Chris Date, uh, and I've had him here in the office, and I like Chris. He's a nice guy. We have each other's cell numbers and things like that. But Chris Date, his big thing is annihilationism. Annihilationism this, annihilationism that. And he can do other things, but he's known for this thing. This is what he seems to be, by appearance, devoting his life to, is the promotion of annihilationism. Well, wait a minute. Why do that? Because now, people like me and others, I have to deal with annihilationism. I wrote 100. It took me months of course, I did it with my wife being sick, and I, you know, I, I just kept studying this thing. But, you know, I would, I, I really should put that time into the false teachers within the Christian church, the, the name it and claim it, blab it and, and grab it, wackos, who are teaching against orthodoxy. I mean, against the, the sufficiency of the atonement, against the sufficiency of God's sovereignty, against um, salvation by grace alone. I mean, these people are teaching flat out damnable heresies. To be honest, universalism doesn't mean you can't be a Christian any more than annihilationism does. So well, people will agree with me on both counts. No, you can be those things and still be Christians, and you can you know, be, in, be in error in varying degrees. But the thing is that now you know, I've had to defend myself against uh, universalists. I've had to defend myself now or defend the issues of, of annihilationism and write a whole bunch of stuff. And Why? I should be out there writing on Buddhism. I should be writing on these cults, analyzing the false teachers that are out there and doing that. And so these guys who are dedicated to this kind of thing, you know, this promotion, it's like, what if I were to promote Calvinism against everything? Else? That's what I, I got to be known for Calvinism. I hope nobody knows me or considers me the Calvinist guy. No way. It should be the guy who runs Carm, the apologist. He happens to be a Calvinist. That's that's okay. <clears throat> and I'm not against Arminians, you know, as Leighton is against Calvinism. I'm not against Arminianism. I don't write against Arminianism. And when I said that, he actually typed in CalvinistCorner.com in a chat room we were in when I said this. CalvinistCorner.com is not against Arminianism. It's defending Calvinism. And so what that is is a defense of that. And I even took it off of harm and put it because I don't want it to be known with a CARM thing because CARM is what I work with. So I have a problem with people trying to be known for a certain thing. It'd be like you being known as a dispensationalist defender. If that was the case where you were starting to do, it's all about dispensationalism, you know, we wouldn't be working well together. Because, And I know you would never do something like that because that's not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You and I both could go out on the street corner. We could go to to the, the station, was it a station out there and where we preached before? Square. Union Square. Yeah. We can go to Union Square together and just all our di differences, which really aren't that important, all our differences are gone. We're preaching that gospel and we're uplifting each other and we're supporting each other in the process, which we've done before. 
And that's how it's supposed to be. Instead of this idiocy, in my opinion, of being known and making a ministry out of a single non-essential issue that you become known for. I think it's a problem. I do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I certainly agree. I mean, this is one of the things I see as a problem when people, I mean, look, I, I, I like Leighton personally. Uh, we used to do an online Bible study, came in during Ephesians. And, and I said to him, I, I called him privately and said, look, you come in and you made the whole thing about anti-Calvinism. You, you study God's word. Let's, you know, the, the, I forget where we were in Ephesians, but he agreed with us, with all the other people there, what the, the text was saying, but he, he like almost had to go on his rant against Calvinism. And I said, Hey, come on in and just discuss the text of scripture. And, uh, you know, I did the same thing with, with Chris date. I, I personally, I like him. He's a, he's a very likable guy. And he, you know, I said, look, you should really branch out, do other things than just the, the one thing on, and it's not, he doesn't actually teach annihilationism, but he, you know, conditional, uh, uh, conditional, not conditionalism, uh, conditionalism. Yeah. Yeah, I'm forgetting the full. I, I equate them together because the nuances yeah. are, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, there's a nuance there that he makes. And so I, I, I don't want to lump him into something he doesn't hold to. But the thing being is, you know, I said you should branch out, do other things also. So um, you, you mentioned something I just want to, I want to raise when I asked this as my own question to you. You know, you said people can be, believe in universalism and still be Christian. Wrong, but still be Christian. How? How how do you see that someone can hold to those two? I can I can see how someone could not hold to which a right two? view of of hell, but I, I'm confused on the on the other. What which question? I missed it. The, the so, holding so you 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 mentioned that someone can believe in universalism and right. be a Christian. Yes, and you know, most people disagree with me. But when I say this, um, what I say, what I mean is it: Can you have an individual who's born again? who's indwelt by the Lord, who also mistakenly thinks that Jesus is going to save everybody who ever lived. Hmm. Could that be possible? Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah I guess I, I, all right. I'm, I'm trying to think through it. I guess it could be, I would just see that, I mean, for a person to recognize that they're, they have a need for Christ. They have to recognize they're a sinner and have a punishment. Uh, if they think everyone's Christian going to heaven. Huh? Christian universalists affirm that. Christian universalists are from the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the physical resurrection, justification by faith alone, period. They just also happen to believe that everybody's going to be saved, and they have references they go to in the scriptures. But why would, so, they, why would they see a need to repent then? Repentance is still necessary in order to be a Christian. Yeah, but they would be and going to heaven repent in the afterlife. I'm just telling you that there are arguments. I'm not defending yeah, them. No, no, no. I, and I'm and just... So, I mean, it's the first time I'm hearing it, that argument being made, so I'm just engaging with it. No, but so I got lambasted by some people <clears throat> when I said, yes, technically, universalists can be Christians. <clears throat> oh, no, they can't. Well, wait a minute. You mean if someone teaches, if someone affirms the deity of Christ, the resurrection, the Trinity, you know, justification by faith, his physical resurrection, but he believes that everybody's going to heaven, that now it means he's damned? Show me in the scripture where that's, that is a requirement or that, that invalidates salvation. And that's my point. Where is that? It's not there. No, they're wrong. Universalists, is ro they're wrong. I have a whole section against it. But I'm just saying, as an example, that yes, you can be in error and still be a Christian. And that's one of the errors you can hold to, just like annihilationism. You can be in error holding to that and still be a Christian. Annihilationism doesn't make you a Christian or not a Christian. 
You know, think about it. Annihilationism says all, um, all the unbelievers are going to stop existing. Does that mean that they're, un they're not, they can't be Christian because they hold of that position? Universalists say that, Christian universalists say that uh, everybody's going to end up going to heaven. Does that mean you're not a Christian because of that? Yeah, I guess, I guess my thing is, and, and I just don't see how someone, why someone would bother even saying I need to come to repentance if I'm going to. That's a different issue. It's a different issue. Why yeah. say they need to come to repentance? And that's one of the dangers of universalism. Yes. Why? Because you can come to repentance in the, in the afterlife and it's, it's a dangerous gospel. Okay. But it does not invalidate someone from being a Christian if they simply have that mistaken view that everybody's going to be saved. I mean, first, Timothy 410. He's a savior of all men. People will say, well, he's all he's a savior of everybody. How can he not be? I mean, I'm not saying they understand things properly, but I see nothing in scripture that says if you believe that or hints to the fact or the, or the idea that if you believe everybody goes to heaven, you end up, you, you, you're going to hell for that. I don't see that in scripture, but I've had people get on me and say, Matt, you can't say that. That's false. Show me in scripture. And that's all I say. And they haven't been able to show me that the teaching of universalism means you're automatically going to hell. Yeah, I believe universalists are, are way wrong. Okay. The Matt Slick Live podcast. And there was a guy who got on you for saying, you know, how can someone not understand the Trinity and go to heaven? And and there, I mean, I, I know from my own personal experience, I didn't understand the Trinity growing up Jewish. I had yeah. knowledge of it. It was something, obviously, it wasn't something taught in synagogue. But I knew Christ was God. I believed he was God. And yeah. if you asked me, how could he be on the cross dying and yet be controlling the world? It's like, well, he's God. He could do what he wants, right? So I don't fully understand him. So there's there was right. error that I had because I didn't know the Trinity. I didn't argue against it. I just didn't understand it. Right. So my 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 theology wouldn't have been as informed and I would have been in, you know, in error in some. Right. Well, that, that's, you know, that's a, in these, I call it a secondary essential, but, um, annihilationism, universalism is not an essential doctrine. It's a debatable issue in that you can affirm it or deny it. It doesn't mean you're saved or not saved. If you believe that everybody's going to be annihilated, the wicked, I, I would, and if someone said that that's so unchristian, you can't be saved. I'd say, okay, show me in scripture. And I don't mean show me in scripture. I got a chip on my shoulder. I mean, Maybe I'm missing something, and I'm serious because I, I take my teaching very seriously that I may I don't know everything. Maybe someone's got an answer to something I don't know. Show me. I'm open. I haven't seen it. I don't think it's there, but I could be wrong. Show me the verse. I'm completely open to being corrected, but it has to be by Scripture. And if they can't show me in Scripture, then I'm forced to conclude that my position is still consistent and true. Yeah, like I think Scripture says that. Where babies get baptized. and. It's not there. Yeah. It's not explicitly taught. <laughs> All right. So, so let's, we're going to go uh, to, we're going to end up bringing in our first questioner. Uh, folks who want to join us, you're welcome to join. You can go to apologeticslive.com. There's a link to join there. And that is how you'd be able to come in, ask your questions. I know we got a lot of people watching in, in uh, YouTube, but you can come on in ask your questions. And before we go to uh, the first caller, Ariel, uh, Matt, we, we get, we got a new sponsor. Well, it was actually a sponsor from your radio show Good. where we're going to be working with. And it is, well, it happens to be my favorite pillow. Yeah, it's good. Uh, my pillow. 
You you got a my pillow, don't you? Yeah, I love it. I'm serious. I'm not just saying it. I, I could not believe it. it's like, oh come on, give me a, a pillow. What's a big deal? I slept with it one night. My wife goes, "How'd it go?" I love this. I would marry it. That's how much I love it. So you, your wife must be jealous. You want to marry a lot of things, but I travel. Yeah, I, I I can't go to hotels without my yeah. my my pillow. I I'm mean, with you. I have it in the wrapped up. And by the way, I did hear you busting on me on your radio show, even though you didn't use my name, referring to a guy that can fall asleep in three seconds. <laughs> yeah, that you can definitely do that. Uh, yeah, we've shared rooms before, and uh, I mean, yeah. But you know, the thing I love about the my pillow is, you know, it's it doesn't matter how much how you lay on it; it is always the same firmness. It's. You know, I've been, I've had it for years now. I just, you know, you could throw it in the washing machine, wash it, dry it. And it's, it's just great. It lasts. It's always the same firmness where I've had other pillows that just over time, you end up having to get new pillows. It's got like a 10 year warranty on it. It's good. It is good. Seriously. Yeah, it's, it is great. And so we, if you want to, to get a a MyPillow, they have different deals that you can get. You can call 1-800- Nine four four five three nine six. That's one eight hundred nine four four five three nine six to get a my pillow. What are you holding up there, Matt? Yeah, and I do. I, I do recommend you get one. I'm not kidding. It really <laughs> is good. And when I travel, I pair, I take it with me. Seriously. So and I'm not just saying that. Yeah, oh, Even I, if they weren't our sponsors, I'd still say it. I would. I say before they respond. I I was in Costco and they and my pillow was there and this guy was thinking about it and it wasn't sure, and I just I literally turned to guy and I I already had one. It wasn't like I was going to buy one. I turned to him. I said, "Dude, I don't travel without it." And he goes, "Well, I travel every week." I'm like, "I don't travel without it." And he turns, looks at the, the guy, and he's like, "It's really that good." The guy was like, "I don't travel without it either," and I'm traveling every week. So yeah, I mean it it is a great it's a great it's pillow. It's moldable, and I have a CPAP machine, and I can sleep with it very well. When I go to hotels, I always get rid of all their hard, you know, they're, they're, they're from the cement factory. That's where they get these pillows. <laughs> and uh, so I just use this one. Oh, it's awesome. Okay, this is what I was uh, showing everybody. That's a nice picture of me with my eyes closed. Hold on, let me make it so it's kind of half. It's uh, it looks better on my full screen instead of on the phone here. But uh, yeah. I think this is uh, my new favorite picture of you. <laughs> you know, it's, so, it's so, an improvement. So, someone took it. <laughs> I don't know what it is about my facial expressions. When I teach the Striving Fraternity Academy, I mean, people go out to YouTube, they take our classes, and we had one guy that just, when we people used to watch live, it would freeze on them. And we had one guy that used to just snap the picture every time it froze, and he put it together, and it was a whole stream of my crazy-looking faces, kind of like that one there. So folks who are listening on the podcast for Apologetics Live, you can't see that, but it was basically my ugly mug looking oh, it's ugly. unusual. It's pretty ugly. <laughs> That's right. That's why yeah. it's perfect. All right. So I am bringing... Ariel, into uh, the Hangout. Ariel, you can unmute yourself. Uh, and while he does, he's a, a Roman Catholic that had a question for you, Matt, on Sola Scriptura. And folks who okay. want to join, come on into apologeticslive.com. The link to join is there. Ariel, go for it. Awesome. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Oh, perfect. Um, so I just had a question, more of an open ended question, but not too open ended, about uh, Sola Scriptura. 
and obviously I'm a Roman Catholic, so I'm wondering, you know, what the other perspective is. So as a Catholic, I do believe that there are three pillars of authority. There's scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. Uh, one of the reasons why I believe that, and there's many examples I could give, but I'll just give one example, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. One example is, so if you look at the um, the period of Revelation in the first century, I don't seem to find any evidence within the New Testament that uh, the period of Revelation ends at the death of the last apostle or the last apostolic person, for example. I, I don't seem to find that in scripture, but I do know that from tradition, from the church tradition. And um, that's one thing. Another thing is uh, there isn't any evidence that the last apostle was the apostle John who died at the end of the first century. But we seem to know that from church tradition that John was the last living apostle. But I'm wondering how a Protestant, for example, would answer that from Sol Scriptura. Answer what? Uh, when the the end of public revelation was, when it's when uh, public revelation ceased. I believe and in. Why, um, what do you mean public revelation? That's interesting. Yeah. Like the apostles, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. With the apostles. Yeah, but uh, obviously, so to get an example, Paul was appointed an apostle, and oh. he didn't directly, you know, uh, meet Christ during his earthly ministry. So yes, there could did. be theoretically apostles. Well, wait, wait. Yeah. Well, I think you cut out. Sorry. But he said he could just Paul appealed to his epistle. Hey, Matt, we're, you're starting to uh, freeze up a bit. You may want to turn your bandwidth down. Matt's frozen. Authority and position. <laughs> well, things. Let's see. Any better yet? Yeah, we can hear I you. I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Let me keep closing some stuff. If you, yeah, if you, keep the, uh, if you keep the bandwidth down to so it's not on like auto high definition, you'll look fuzzier and that'll be better for those watching online. That's true. It would be. Okay. How do I sound now? Good. Perfect. And yeah. how do I look? Look, the camera's fine. Unfortunately, you're in the camera. It is. Okay, good. So um, I just closed a bunch of windows. And uh, so I was saying is that Paul, the apostle defended his apostolic authority by, uh, well, by saying in first Corinthians nine, one, that he was an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord. So, um, yeah. So I know that he's an apostle, and Paul recognizes is uh, Peter recognized him as a, a scriptural, his writings as scriptural as apostolic issue. So that's it. Now I'm a I believe in the continuation of all the charismatic gifts. So I believe in a type of revelation that continues, but not in an apostolic sense. One of the things the apostles could do, and there's seven different kinds of apostles in the New Testament, but um, one of the things the apostles could do was write scripture, but not necessarily all of them. And uh, we do know that the authority that was demonstrated, which uh, the Catholic Church does not have, uh, it claims it can have it, but it just does not. And we can go into why the Roman Catholic Church is apostate and false if you want. But um, Jesus is the one who gave the authority. And which I, I did some research on this in Scripture. What I found out what was interesting. Come on. Here we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Come on. Okay, here we go. In my article, does the Roman Catholic Church have the authority of Christ? Because you said the tradition, which I'll get to questions about, and magisterium. Um, 
well, the magisterium is supposed to have its authority from Jesus. I think it's paragraph 83 or 2 or 5 or something like that in the Catholic Catechism. Well, check this out. Jesus raised the dead on command. Peter raised the dead on command. Peter healed on command. Paul healed on command. This is part of their apostolic authority. And what you find is that uh, in Matthew 10, 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And in Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So this is the authority that, that they had from Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says it has the apostolic authority from Christ. Well, that means along with the disciples. But you see, the thing is, the Roman Catholics can't do the same thing the disciples did, the apostles did. They were able to heal and raise the dead on command. doesn't happen in the Catholic Church. So, sure, there are healings that occur in Catholicism and healings that occur in Protestantism. So each time a Catholic says, well, we have a Protestant uh, or we have Catholic healings, that shows our authority. Protestants could say, well, we have healings too. Therefore, we have authority. But the Catholics would say, well, no, we don't recognize yours. Well, I'm going to go to the scriptures. And what I see is the pattern of apostolic authority is part of it is to be able to do it on command. And neither one can do it necessarily on command, it, you know, except there's some ambiguity here as well. In that, you know, Protestant and a Catholic priest, I would say a Catholic priest is doing it by the power of the evil one. But a, a Protestant pastor, they could both be sitting in the same place. And one, they could say things like, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise. And it could happen. Or name of Jesus Christ, be healed. It could happen. But we have to be careful because even that, uh, how do we interpret it? Because I would say, and I, I firmly believe Catholic priests, uh, there may be exceptions, are just servants of the devil. I believe that. And Protestant uh, pastors doesn't mean they're automatically Christian because they're Protestant pastors, but for the most part, I believe they're fine. Both could could command, so to speak, a healing, and it could occur. And we know that demonic healings can occur because Jesus talks about them in Matthew 7, 23, 22 and 23. Many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy, cast out demons, perform many miracles in your name? Get away from me. I never knew you. So he, they weren't doing it by his authority. They're doing it by a different authority. So we can have a false healing thing. So this position here, of authorities really problematic. The Roman Catholic Church simply says it has authority. Really? Uh, so? So what? They're going to have authority. Demonstrate the authority. How can it demonstrate its authority? It says it has it from Christ. Really? Uh, so what? You can say it all you want. Let's see it. Because Jesus said, in order for you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to this paralytic, take up your, your, your pallet and walk. He backed up his authority by what he's able to do. Let's see the Roman Catholics do the same thing in the priesthood. Yeah, so I totally agree with you that um, the, the Catholic Church doesn't, it isn't apostolic in the sense that it has the same, the very same authority that the apostles did. So the Catholic Church can't produce new, new revelation after the death of the apostles. It does and, it all the time. Oh, like what example would that be? Oh, uh, Mary ascended into heaven, Mary's sinlessness, for example, full of grace, mediatrix, things like that. These are not biblical revelations. These are well, extra biblical and they're, they're doctrine and they're supposed to be official Roman Catholic theology. That is extra biblical revelation that they claim out of the magisterium's um, authority. Well, them not being in the Bible doesn't, doesn't entail that they were created revelation after the fact of 
biblical the, the biblical period of revelation so they could have been they could have existed during the period of biblical revelation without them being really? created and then, then being you written to, then you had to go with tradition then right yeah i would have to go to with tradition but that's why i asked the question about where did you where do you have this idea that uh bit that that uh, apostolic revelation ended at the death of the last apostle. That's that seems to be a tradition that you because have. It's apostolic authority, and the apostles had that authority. And apostles died; their authority died with them because they were apostles. It's, that's why we call it apostolic authority. Well, what's this idea that you need to have apostolic authority in order to have a revelation? I don't believe we do. You asked the question; I was answering your question the way you phrased it. Oh, I'm sorry. So let, let me qualify then. Let me just say that. Uh, how do you have this idea that you you cannot have revelation after the death of the last apostles? Revelation. I, didn't, I don't believe speaking. that you can't have revelation after the death of the last apostles. But like I believe in the charismatic gifts. I believe in the charismatic gifts. But like like a binding revelation, like revelation that you need to believe for the sake of salvation or whatever. Oh, I mean, I, I don't believe that. I don't. I don't believe that personally. But I'm just saying what. There's nothing in scripture specifically saying that there cannot be revelation after the death of the last apostles. You're right. Nothing in scripture says that can't happen. Right. Yeah. But you seem to believe that, don't you? That you need to. No, I I believe in the charismatic gifts. I believe that God can give revelational knowledge to people for certain situations and certain times. But that isn't binding on every Christian. Correct. So those seem to be private revelations, not public in the sense that. Not not the same as authority as scripture, but I, I'm specifically wondering about uh, revelation that's that has the same authority as scripture because okay. uh, scripture has the final authority. So yeah, that's the, I do not believe that continues anymore. Now that's the right way to answer the ask the question. The same My authority apologies. as scripture. No no problem, yeah. man. It's all right. Uh, the same authority as scripture um, because we know that only the apostles wrote scripture. So therefore, since we know that only scripture is inspired. And traditions not inspired, therefore we can't say we have equal revel- revelatory authority and power from tradition to scripture, because only scripture is said to be inspired, not tradition. So that's why I would hold that it, it's that kind of revelation stopped with the apostles, because Jesus gave his authority only to the apostles, and they were able to exercise that, and they were directly with them. And Jesus did say. I'm an apostle. Have I not seen the risen Lord? Which is really interesting. First Corinthians nine one. One of his apostolic requirements, it seems to be, is that he saw the risen Lord. Saw, and when they had to replace Judas, Matthias was picked by Lot. But they said in the part of the requirement, who's going to be one to take his place? Who was with him from the beginning? And the implication is saw the resurrection as well. So it seems to be that ap- true apostolic authority, at least. Two apostles like that have to have been alive at the time of Christ. So what the Catholic Church does is it says it has apostolic succession authority. Well, that's just a claim. That's all it is. Mm. It can claim it, but so what? I could say they're wrong, and they could say, well, this is your claim. Yep. It's equal in claim to the Roman Catholic Church. Because I want to see in Scripture. Show me in Scripture. See, again, only Scripture is said to be inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16. Jesus appealed to Scripture. The apostles appealed to Scripture. Jesus was God in flesh. Of course, he made new Scripture by just speaking. I mean, that's his unique ability. But even God in flesh 
reference scripture as his authority when he was re rebuking the devil. I mean, I mean, you and I could sit there and go, well, why didn't he just go and the devil's gone? You know, solve a lot of problems, you know, but he didn't. He rebuked him with scripture. Jesus' authority seems to be that he, you know, wanted scripture. And so let's just follow after Christ. Let's follow after the apostles. The problem with tradition is, I could ask you a bunch of questions about tradition. I know I'm talking a lot, but there's That's a fine. lot of uh, there's a lot of problems with tradition. There's a lot. I mean, I have an article. I have uh, 65 questions related to tradition, and we can't go over them all. I don't expect you to answer every one. I'm not trying to you know make you look bad, but these are questions. You know, what exactly is sacred tradition? That's my first question. What is it? And how is sacred tradition declared to be such in the church? And what is the means of the church determining what is true sacred tradition? Did the apostles intend for their sacred tradition to be sacred tradition some, uh, or something invented by the church? Or is it invented by the church? Those are just the first four opening questions. You know, what is sacred tradition? When I ask Catholics that, they don't really have an answer. Because, you know, not to be mocking. This is not a mocking intent. But, you know priest bob and priest frank are walking in the vatican and tradition means it's by verbal thing it's with traditions of things maybe some of it could be written down but either way what is written had to be verbalized first so let's say bob past I mean, priest bob and priest frank are talking and priest bob says hey i got some sacred tradition for you or some tradition Really? What is it? And he says something about one of the apostles that did or said someplace or time. All right, let's just say, let's make one up here. This is just to make one up that uh, Peter, uh, on his third attempt, was able to walk on water. It's not, I'm not saying it is or is not, it's just, you know, making this up. And it's a, it's a tradition. Okay, is it true or is it not true? How do you know? How do you know it wasn't made up in the 400s and the 800s? How do you know someone didn't overhear someone saying something in a, you know, in a, a hallway in the Vatican and overheard it and heard, overheard it out of context and says, oh, that's part of the tradition. And then starts repeating it. I mean, what is sacred tradition? How do you know it's sacred tradition? How is it transmitted verbally? And how do you know? Is there a corpus of all these statements that people are saying in the Vatican? Hey, you hear the one about, you hear the one about? No, I didn't hear about that one. What about that? What about this? How many things are there? And these are serious questions. How is sacred tr tradition transmitted in the church through the centuries? Is sacred tradition transmitted through the centuries orally by written, by written record, divine revelation? Is it invented and then voted on? Or is it a combination of these? If it's a combination of these, then which options are the right ones? If the means of transmission is not known, then how can tr sacred tradition be true? Is the transmission of the tradition a verbal communication from one person to another through the centuries regarding ancient theological teachings that originated with the apostles? How would you know? Is sacred tradition a verbal communication? If it is, then does the person know that he's communicating actual sacred tradition? Or does he not? If such person is unaware, then how does he know he's conveying authentic information? If he is not aware, then how is tradition discovered among the plethora of rumored statements among the apostles? And I can go on, and that's just question number 20. See, there's problems. Where does the Roman Catholic Church get off and saying what is and isn't sacred tradition? Oh, because they have the authority. Who says they have the authority? The Catholic Church does. That's circular. Uh, 
could I respond by saying, uh, by asking uh, about, uh, so here's one instance that I think is analogous to this. Um, okay. I think the, the development of the canon, for example, uh, if you were to ask a Christian during the second century, or maybe the early second century, what's the canon of the New Testament? It depends on which Christian in which area, which bishop you ask, what the, yeah. the canon of the New Testament is going to be. Absolutely. So there was a process of ongoing development of the recognition of the canon. And, and tradition it, was it part might, of it. Tradition was part of it. And it might fall Absolutely. into these these questions that you're asking. Uh, Except uh, that it's it might have those In what way? Well, let's just pick uh, the idea of Mary's ascension into heaven. There's yeah. nothing in scripture that, that, that even hints towards that. Nothing. So it has to be something else. Now, so let's say 300 years later, and uh, this isn't exactly accurate, but this is for the illustration, illustrating something. 300 years later, after Jesus died, there's a council, uh, roughly 300 years there was, and they're determining what scripture is. Well, part of the issues of what was and was not scripture was the tradition that they had, but also was the writings that they possess authored by an apostle or an amanuensis of an apostle, a secretary of an apostle like Luke. And so was that the case? If it was, then that was one of the levels that it passed and had to go on and accept it. Uh, does it have that? And then here's the subjective thing, that authority. Now, Jesus did say, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll follow after me. And I use that in the declaration that the church itself and dwelt by Christ will recognize the word of God. And so early on, I don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church was very apostate. I believe it was just getting there. And so I believe that the Spirit of God could work through even unbelievers uh, to bring about his will. It works all things after the counsel of his will. He knows what are his scriptures. He worked through people. And think about this. What's inspiration of scripture? So Paul the Apostle sits down and he writes something. And what's interesting is that his will is subjected to the will of God, but yet he's still free. And what he's writing is exactly what God decreed from eternity would be in place. And yet he's free to do that. And so the spirit works through people and the inspiration of scripture is proof of that. And so as the apostles wrote scripture and it was inscripturated, we have that same kind of a thing in the indwelling of the people by the Holy Spirit of God, recognizing what the Holy Spirit himself or Jesus' words are in the scriptures. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. And I believe that's a legitimate understanding and part of recognition of the scriptures. The issue of Mary, by, for example, is completely unbiblical in the sense that it's not in scriptures, period. It has to come outside of the scriptures. And because it comes outside of the scriptures, it's not inspired. Mm -hmm. So in response to that, uh, you gave the criteria that uh, in order to be considered, I think it's considered for canonicity, uh, a book of the, New of the New Testament had to either be written by an apostle or an associate of the apostles. But again, I don't see that criteria in scripture. That seems no, to be a tradition. Yeah. It, it just seems, seems to be a to be common sense thing that was done. Because, you know, what if, uh, you know, uh, Apostle Bob, you know, from a different sect comes up and goes, yeah, I got something I wrote about Jesus. Uh, did you, were you with him? No. Were you in Jerusalem? No. Did you ever meet any apostles? No. We seem to have some instances in the New Testament where, where, so for example, you might disagree with me on here on this one, but I don't think Hebrews was written by Paul. A lot of Christians don't. Um, I do. But it was still considered, yeah, that's true. But uh, it's all right. 
it was a it was a debated issue within the early church. Yeah, it was. Not all the fathers agreed on this point. And James and it was and still included yeah. in James and Revelation. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know if the John who wrote Revelation. Well, I, I think that the John who wrote Revelation was a disciple of Jesus, but a lot of Christians questioned this issue, yeah. and yet it was still included as part of the yeah. canon. Yeah. So it, it wasn't a strict criterion. See, but you're talking canonicity. about this recognition of God's word. All that's all you're talking about. Not invention of new doctrines. Well, that's begging the question. So the question to be to be argued is whether or not the Assumption of Mary was invented doctrine. And I'm, I'm arguing that if you're going to argue that, then you have to argue that uh, the canon we have, the criterion for canonicity, are themselves invented because they're not, strictly speaking, in Scripture. Okay, well, I can bypass all of this. The Roman Catholic Church says it has the authority, and that's how it says that that is a true doctrine. If the Roman Catholic Church teaches stuff against Scripture, then it's lost its authority. Simple principle. Okay. Yeah. Right? And, that, and so if we can find places where it does, then it's a problem. And then we know it, does, it doesn't have the authority. And it does yeah. in many places. You know, um, let, me, let me go to something here. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to set you up. You're a nice guy. You're not out to... You know, you're not mean, you're not, you know, you're not a jerk. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm setting you up. All right. You ready? Sounds good. Like being set up. If I'm telling you, I'm setting you up. <laughs> okay. You're telling um, him you're setting him up and he says, sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds <laughs> That's good. right. That's right. All right. So <laughs> I'm setting you up. <laughs> you, are you, are you, you like being tortured? Like being set? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just put something in the, uh, in the text. This is from the Catechism, paragraph 972. After speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. Do you agree with the statement? Yeah. Okay. So now think about what the statement is saying. There's no better way to conclude than to look to Mary. I'll have to look at the entire citation, but there's yeah, a way you, that you can read it. There's more than one way to read it, obviously, and you could read it in, in a. I don't. I don't want to put it this way, but there's an unsympathetic way to read it, and I'm. I'm not trying to say that you're doing it deliberately, but no, it not seems trying to be deliberately. Okay. Um. But sure, sure, there is a bad way to read it. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I'm going to go to where this is, and um, uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to enter the catechism of the paragraph. This is uh, paragraph um, nine seventy two. So I'm going to read 971 and 2 and 3, okay? Because this is important. Okay. You'll see it. Okay. So we can't do – I can read for eight hours, but I'm not trying to be you know, contextual. All generations will call me blessed. The church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. Well, where's that in Scripture? But anyway, the church rightly honors a Blessed Virgin with special devotion. From the most ancient times, a Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title of Mother of God to those to whose protection the faithful fly in all their dangers and needs. So I'm going to write an article on that one. This very special devotion differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit and greatly fosters this adoration. You know, lit Latria and Herpidulia stuff. The liturgical feast dedicated to the Mother of God and Mary in prayer, such as the Rosary, um, are an epitome of the whole gospel. Ex they express this devotion to the Virgin Mary. 
paragraph 972. After speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. In her, we contemplate what the church already is in her mystery, on her own pilgrimage of faith, and what she will be in the homeland in the homeland at the end of her journey there in the glory of the most high and undivided trinity in the communion of all the saints the church is awaited by the one she venerates as mother of her lord and as her own mother in the meantime the mother of jesus in the glory which she possesses in body and soul in heaven is the image and beginning of the church the mother of jesus is okay is the image and beginning of the church as it is to be perfected in the world to come. Likewise, she, sign, she shines forth on earth today. Oh, yeah, I'm messing up. Likewise, she shines forth on earth until the day of our Lord Jesus shall come, a sign of certain hope and comfort to the pilgrim people of God. Paragraph 973 is really short. By pro pronouncing her fiat at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the work, whole work of her son, was to accomplish. She is mother wherever he is savior and head of the mystical body. Okay. So it says in 972, after speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. In her, we contemplate what the church already is in her mystery, etc. Do you agree with that? Yeah, because uh, in Catholic theology, and this is spoken of by uh, Pope Benedict XVI, mm -hmm. he's written about this, that Mary is seen as the perfect role model, the perfect Christian, the perfect follower of Christ. And she already has in her body what Christians are waiting in uh, in heaven. So she is uh, the first Christian after Christ to have uh, received her glorified body. And that's why we look to her and why we venerate her above the other saints. Yeah, She's received her glorified body already? Yeah. Well, she was assumed to heaven, so in Catholic I theology. I didn't know that. Oh, i got to find that because that would be a heresy. But let's stick with this. Um, no better way to conclude than by looking to Mary. Uh, I would offer a correction. There is a better way to conclude by looking to Jesus. Is, well, looking, to Jesus like... better than, is Jesus, looking to Jesus better than looking to Mary regarding the no, church? No, I totally agree. I totally agree. So this oh. is not, I don't, I don't view this as an unqualified statement. This would be like Jesus saying that of all those who are born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Well, obviously Jesus is born of a woman and he's obviously greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying it in a very qualified way. And I view this in a, in a very similar vein. I'm, I, I think that the, the writers of the catechism obviously had in mind that Jesus was obviously the, per, the best person to look to, but why is it not? We're speaking about, well, we're, we're talking about, those who belong to the church, now Christ is the head of the church, but of those who are in the body of the church, there's no better person to look to than to Mary. She's mm -hmm. the perfect role model. No, uh, Jesus is the perfect role model because Jesus rebuked Mary in John 2. That is uh, controversial. But it is controversial. There's a, it's controversial because the Roman Catholic Church cannot allow it to be a rebuke. When he said what he said to her, mother, I mean, woman, what have I to do with you? That was a polite rebuke against her. And that's how it was understood in the culture of the time, because she was asking him to do something was not his time to do. She blew it. As a Catholic, you can't have that be. It has to be interpreted someplace else. The problem here is that I'm just trying to show you one of the very subtle ways that the Roman Catholic Church is false. It says no better way to look than, than, than by looking to Mary. Yes, Jesus is the better way. 
And they should always be. If, if they're going to be really Christian, after speaking of the church, her origin, mission, and destiny, we can find no better way to conclude it by looking to Jesus. In him, we contemplate what the church already is in the mystery, in the pilgrimage of our faith. It is what in him is a homeland we're seeking in our journey. That's how it should be. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus, John 14, 26, John 15, 26. Jesus bears witness of himself. The Father bears witness of himself. Let me, let me show you something here. If you go to CARM, you go to CARM.org. It took me years to write, about two years to research this. 100 Truths About Jesus. And I'm gonna, I want to convert it to a book. It's just a simple article. I got to it here, and I'm going to read. This is what it says here about in the scriptures. It says, uh, Jesus bears witness of himself, John 8, 18. Jesus' works bear witness of himself, John 5, 36. The Father bears witness of Jesus, John 5, 37. The Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus, John 15, 26. The multitudes bear witness of Jesus, John 12, 17. The prophets bear witness of Jesus, Acts 10, 43. The scriptures bear witness of Jesus, John 5, 39. Now, of those things, guess how many there are? There's six. I think there's going to be more. Actually, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's right. I always thought there was seven. There's seven issues, seven the perfect number, uh, out of the Bible that speak of bearing witness of Christ. Jesus, himself, his works, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the multitude, the prophets, and the scriptures all bear witness of Christ. This is because the Holy Spirit is working through them. That's not the case here. In more, in uh, <laughs> I want to say Mormonism. In Catholicism, Mary is elevated. Mary is the one you've got to go to. Mary is the one. Because in, in the, Mary is full of grace. Mary is not subject to corruption. Mary is the all holy one. Mary is sec the second Eve. There's devotion to Mary. You entrust our cares to Mary. Ask Mary to pray for us. Pray to Mary. Mary in prayer is the epitome of the gospel. Mary is worshipped, and I have the book right there. I can open it up and show it to you where it has the word worship in it from a Catholic uh, source. Uh, entrusting ourselves to Mary's prayers. Mary sits at the right hand of Christ. Mary is second only to Jesus. No man goes to Christ but by his mother. Mary taken into heaven. Mary's our advocate, helper, mediatrix. Mary, the mother, members of Christ. Mary preserved from original sin. Mary's the queen over all things. Mary brings us the gifts of eternal life. Mary's the advocate, mediatrix. Mary helped make atonement for the sins of man. Mary crushed the head of the serpent. Mary delivers our souls from death. She brings us the gift of eternal salvation. She's preparing a home for us. She hears our prayers. This is all is, is Jesus the, is supposed to be. Is the one about proof. the atonement one the worst one for you out of all those? Uh, it's make, one make, of the worst. Mary making atonement one of the worst ones. Yeah, that's in. Do you know fundamental... when the church? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, do you know what the church typically means by that? Go it ahead, isn't tell me. in the same sense in which uh, Christ makes atonement. Of uh, course. Mar Mary just makes reparation for the temporal punishment for our sins. Which is she not what? the same thing as Christ. She what? I'm she, sorry, what? She, she offers reparation for the temporal punishments of our sins. Reparation. R-E-P? Reparation? Yeah, reparation. R-E-P-A-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. You want reparation? Can you define reparation? Uh, there's multiple ways, but I'll, I'll give you the definition that uh, includes um, okay. what Christ normally does. 
what Christ did in the act of atonement. So Christ repairs the, uh, well, he uh, satisfies the, inf- the infinite debt of sin that was due to us. And he saves us from eternal damnation. But the reparation in terms of uh, temporal punishment is, uh, so whenever we have our sins forgiven, there remains uh, a temporal debt that we have to God. So th- there is, there remains uh, an act of, or an expression of, uh, of sorrow that we have to, to give to God as a token of our repentance after we have been forgiven. And we can either perform it ourselves or we can right. ask somebody to perform it for us. And in, in Mary's case, Mary is, is a source of that reparation. She can offer to God a token of our sorrow for sin, the sorrow that we've already been forgiven through uh, the infinite merits of Christ. So that's so an act of atonement. Repair, you're repairing to me to make amends, to fix it, reparation. To, to satisfy, that, it can either mean that or it can mean to satisfy some kind of debt that you have. Right. Making a satisfaction case, for be, a debt or wrong yeah. or an injury or something like that. Correct. Sure. Yeah. And so Mary makes reparations for what? And the the, the reparation she makes is uh, the debt that we have to offer to God a token of our sorrow, a token of repentance that we've already made. So we've already made repentance, but it's, it's good to offer to God a visible token of our repentance. So she makes it by prayer possible. or by fasting. She makes it possible. Uh, so she, during her earthly life, she already performed uh, acts of holiness. And the church actually, um, through the church's prayers, they ask for Mary's acts of holiness to be applied to us. Oh, crap. <laughs> um. and, and not just Mary, but any of the saints, but Mary's the, the, the primary yeah. source of reparation because yeah. she performed in Catholic yeah. theology, the, the, the greatest acts of holiness out of all of those in the church. Yeah. My heart breaks for you. You're so lost. You're so damned. You're such, you're such lost state and you're, you're lost. But this has nothing to do with, this is not about no, salvation. Just it's just about, no, you're it's just, just about lost. temporal punishment. No, I know. It's just that you believe this and it's so ungodly. It is. It's, it's just so grieving. Um, it's part of tradition. Part of me. <laughs> Yeah, part of yeah, sacred crap tradition. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that um, because that's not respectful. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really struggling between s- strong anger at these lies. Um, I don't mean that you're a liar, but these things that injure people in their eternal salvation. I, I'm torn between that and my, my, just, my heart breaks for you, uh, that you are trapped in these lies. And... I'm having real struggle here. Uh, which part wants to take dominance? Um, reparation means to make things right. Mary doesn't do anything for us. Uh, Jesus did everything. Jesus is the one who did all that's necessary. He finished it on the, on the cross. What Catholicism does is then say, well, yeah, he did that part, but we have to do our part uh, to make things right before God. May that blasphemous demonic doctrine die in the pit of hell. Because that's what it is. When we ask for when we ask for other people's prayers, when we ask for somebody to, for on behalf of somebody else to make somebody else holier, uh, is that not an act of show me that in, in scripture? Show me in scripture where you can pray to other people. Show me in scripture where you can pray to Mary. Show no, me an inspired word. 
No, you pray to Mary and you ask Mary to do things. Uh, show me in scripture oh, God's inspired word for that. Um, when it comes that. to prayer to the saints, there are some, some arguable uh, citations, but I prefer to just defer to tradition on the question of prayer to saints. But prayer for, how, how do you know the, prayer for the saints, I can... How do you know the tradition? Oh, um, I mean, on the same basis that I know the canon of scripture is the accurate canon of scripture. And how do you know the canon of scripture is the accurate canon? I trust the church's judgment on that through okay, tradition. That, 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 canon includes, authority. that canon includes the Apocrypha. Uh, the Deuterocanon, which is part so of you trust the, the church's Apocrypha. So how do you know that your church is true? Uh, Christ said that he would lead uh, the church into all truth. So you're interpreting the scriptures on your own? And subjecting um, the Catholic church to it? Ultimately, we have to make our own judgments. And I think, but that's a problem because you don't have the I authority make, to it. There's a problem. You don't have the authority to interpret scripture apart from the authority of the Roman Catholic church. So if you just I, judge the Roman Catholic church's tradition true based on what you think scripture says, then you're the one interpreting scripture and subjecting the Roman Catholic church to it. When the Bible, when the Roman Catholic church says you can't do that. Well, the Catholic church has only infallibly defined a few verses of scripture. So yeah, most of ever heard is 15. Right. Yeah, something like that. So, so that I mean, means it's not infallibly interpreted something like 99.98% of the Bible. No, like uh, they haven't given detailed interpretations of most of the Bible, but there's general principles you have to go by when you're interpreting scripture. But, so you put your trust and your faith in the Holy Roman Catholic Church because it says it has a tradition and it says it has the authority and it has the authority to interpret scripture. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, paragraph 85. The church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ, paragraph 88. But I would not believe the gospel had not the authority of the Catholic church already moved me, paragraph 119. So... The Roman Catholic Church is claiming to be that authority, but how do you know the Roman Catholic Church is true? And then you just said by your interpretation of Scripture. How so is this possible? is how I do it. I so if I were to come to the Scripture as a non-Catholic, I would try to exegete the text of Scripture, reading out of the text, as opposed to reading into a text. Good. And if I were to, in my view, if I were to read out of the text what the text says, you know, given the historical context and um, the actual, you know, the original languages and general principles of hermeneutics, in my view, I would find evidence that the historical church called the Roman Catholic Church is what Christ is referring to when he says that he would lead, lead the church you into all find that evidence? Where's that evidence in the scriptures? Can you show me one of them? Well, Jesus said that he would lead the church into all truth, and, and that verse? would entail... that. That would entail. What uh, verse? I, I don't have a. I don't know the Important. exact verse, but let's see if we can find it. Because you just made a statement. The Holy. He will yeah, guide I'll you have into to all find truth. It. Guide you, right? Maybe try. Uh, this is in Gospel when, John. Gospel John. John sixteen thirteen. But when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide yeah. you into all the truth. Who's He speaking to? The apostles. Okay. Is He speaking to the Roman Catholic Church? No, but from that text, and you just I, read uh, into the text. You just isogeted. You just broke your own thing. Okay, so that doesn't no, no, no. Work. So let me let me explain. 
So Christians have generally interpreted that as referring to not only the apostles, but the church that would gather the, the revelation that the apostles would preach to them. So I think you would agree that the church throughout the ages has had a, the core truth of the gospel based on that text, based on no. the fact that Christ would no. lead his apostles into all truth and the apostles would preach to the church it, and the church would not fall into um, complete apostasy. No. <laughs> of course there's an apostasy because the Bible prophesies there's going to be an apostasy. And that's the Antichrist. Yeah, because we have Protestantism. So there's not going to be complete, even though I will say very quickly that a lot of Protestantism is going into apostasy. The Roman Catholic Church already is. Now Protestantism is going into it as well. I mean, so I'm not just picking on you or your church, but this verse out of John 16, 13 is not about the succession of apostolic authority in the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. You just read into the text. You broke your own rule. Is it about the church, though? Is it about the church? He's, well, we always, whenever we're going to understand something, he said, what we're going to do, what we have to do is, who's he speaking to, right? The apostles, First thing, right? He's speaking to the apostles. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you. He's talking to the apostles into the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So now, if you say that's the word church, that that's the church, well then, let me just, I'm going to click, I'll do experiment. It doesn't prove anything. I'm hitting control F. I'm typing in the word church. The next appearance of that word is in the book of Acts, chapter 5. All right, so let me give you a better text then that okay. is more explicit. Okay. Uh, Matthew 16. 18. Matthew 16 and 18. I'll also say to you that you yeah. are Peter, and upon this rock I'll be build uh, my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's a problem. The word Peter okay. there is Petros, and the word rock. Oh, I, I, that, that is, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm talking about the, the church part. The church part. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to show you. The word okay. Peter is Petros. The word rock is Petra. Petra is a large mass. Peter, Petros, is a small little pebble. You are the small pebble, but upon the large mass of truth, I'll build my church. It's not upon, it, this has nothing to do with any papacy or church authority or anything. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. The word church is ecclesia. The word church is used in at least five different ways. Because that ecclesia can mean gathering of people. But church we have what's called the invisible and the visible church. And you would agree with this basic principle that you could go to a church, you and I could go to a particular church, and you would agree that some people in it statistically are saved and really Christians, and some are not, even though they're attending. That's certainly a possibility. We would call that visible church the visible church. The invisible church are the church members who are really redeemed. And so my church... I'll build my church. What? Is he talking about an ecclesiastical structure with bishops and presbyteries? Or is he talking about the people who are indwelt by him whom he has called to follow him? Because you don't need a building. You don't need all yeah. this stuff. You know, if we we're on a desert island, you know, and you got converted to Christianity, we could have church right there as a church service. If you just you and I, right? And it's their wives. I don't know if you're married or not. Families, whatever. Okay, we, we'd be having a church. We don't, you know, under palm trees. There's our church, right? 
What's he saying? You can't read into the text what isn't there. So if I'm reading into the text, you get uh, your I'm sorry, you're breaking up. scriptural idea that the church – I'm sorry. Um, if I'm reading into the text, where would you get your scriptural evidence for the idea that the church has the authority to recognize the canon infallibly? Jesus says, my From what sheep is- will hear my voice, and I give eternal life to Perfect. Them. The sheep are Perfect. those who are Christians. But Perfect. That's yeah. the invisible church, not the visible church. My sheep, he says, are sheep and are goats. There's true believers, there's false believers. So only the true believers are recognized. Okay, hey, Matt, real quick. Yeah. I think there was a fallacy of equivocation there on the word church. I think both of you guys are using the word church differently. Well, I'm getting ready to clear that up. Yeah. Okay. If, if it comes to it. Yeah. By the word, because on CARM, coincidentally, I've done a study on the word church. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, but so it's not visible in any way. So how would you know? I didn't say it was invisible in any way. Okay, I see. I mean, certainly, I think that there is a church that's invisible in a certain way, in which I believe that there's those who are elect for salvation. And um, it's not everybody who's in the church, in the visible church, at least. Yeah, I know you have a different uh, uh, soteriology than I do, but so yeah, there are some similarities the there. <laughs> but um, ultimately, um, I would agree with you that the people of God ultimately are those who recognize the canon of Scripture. But that's that's all I'm saying. That's, that's ultimately what I was saying. That right. I get my evidence of that from what Christ says about the people of God being able to be led into the, the truth of the gospel, which includes the canon of scripture, which is one of the means of which, by which we recognize Christ's voice. Yeah. And that's why doing, my view, that's not, why my view is not circular. You're not listening to Christ. You're listening to the church. Okay. Well, I'm listening to Christ's words in, in the gospel of John. Well, yeah, but you misinterpreted them. I mean, I was just showing you. You know, I mean, you're reading into the text. We had to go to John sixteen thirteen. That wasn't it. So you went to a different verse, Matthew sixteen eighteen. And now we have the issue: what is the church? I was going by a memory. My apologies. It's all right. But you know, the word church is used as a body of the body of Christ, a gathering of people, local churches, the people of God, and ecclesiastical body. Five different. I have a research. I've done it. Every single instance of the word ecclesia in the in the uh, New Testament. Strong number 1577, 115 occurrences, 112 verses. Yeah, there so, are definitely different senses of the word church. Absolutely. Yeah. So we Absolutely. have to, you know, it's called the semantic domain. But we don't want to make a mistake, though. There's a, a, an exegetical error called illegitimate totality transfer. So, for example, <clears throat> uh, you're Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So... There's a sense in which the word church means gathering of people in Acts 19.32 when it says, for the assembly was in confusion. So I could say that means a gathering of a bunch of people. So I could, I could then transfer the meeting. This would be a, this is called illegitimate totality transfer in that it, one of the meetings of the word in different contexts is an assembly of people. And I transfer that meeting over to here. I, will, I say to you, Peter, and upon this rock, I'll build my assembly of people and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And you go, that doesn't make sense. So that's an exegetical error. So we've got to be careful because I, I, I'm, I'm actually criticizing potential in my own interpretations. You know, is 
is I, I want you to understand that I'm aware of this problem and I'll build my church. What does the word church mean? Well, it can mean at least five different things. I think there's seven. Some people have said seven different mean, meanings, but I've found five basic ones. So how do you know that the word church here means, for example, uh, a traditional ecclesiastical body, the Roman, Roman Catholic Church? Or how do you know it doesn't mean the invisible church body of Christ? We have those two options. It could mean other things as well. You know, the people of God, because it can mean that. And great fear came upon the whole church and all of the those who heard these things. It could mean, yeah. you know, it could mean a local body as well. But you see, you know, Catholics read into the text a lot. What isn't I mean, there? For the purposes of this discussion, I'm not committing myself to either reading. So for, for the sake of argument, I can just agree with your reading. And uh, I don't think it changes my argument. Okay. Um, the point is that the, the essential argument I was making was that the canon of scripture um, was recognized by the church apart from any appeal to scripture itself. But that was ultimately based on tradition. No, that was not, no, 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 no. It was appeal. No, the scriptures themselves were looked to. Absolutely, the content of them, who wrote them, what was said in them. Absolutely, they were examined. It was not just tradition; they were it was arbitrary. But that was they were examined. Absolutely, but they, they weren't the final appeal of authority. Well, would you say that anything Jesus said, written down by an apostle, naturally had authority? Very true, but we don't. There are texts whose authorship was disputed. Yes, and we don't know there's only four gospels. That's very true. And there's but, reasons. I can back you, give you evidence out of the Old Testament for that. Uh, for what? I can give you evidence out of the Old Testament for there's only four gospels. God knows what He's really doing like in His Word. He He does. It's just, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, you look at it. I mean, dude, come on. Look, you believe Jesus is God in flesh, right? Absolutely. And he has all authority in heaven and earth, right? Absolutely. And he said to pray to him, right? Absolutely. And so if you pray to Jesus and ask him, who has all authority, to forgive you of all of your sins, would he forgive you of all of your sins? Absolutely. Do you need Mary? For the forgiveness? No, I mean Mary's not going to. Mary's not going to forgive my sins. Only Jesus can. Okay, and you don't need a priest. priest. You You don't don't need a priest, do you? You go straight to Jesus, can't you? Yeah, if I'm sorry for my sins because I love God, then Christ will automatically forgive me of my sins. Wait! Whoa! 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 Oh, so it's a formula now. He will automatically do something based on your condition of heart? Based on my faith. Oh. And trust in him. So then it's not based Based on on my disposition. It's not based on any commandments that you would do, as the Roman Catholic Church says, are necessary for salvation. In paragraph 2068, it says that, that baptism... Uh, the bishops, successors of the apostles, received from the Lord the mission of teaching all peoples and of preaching the gospel to every creature so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. And you just said by faith. That contradicts paragraph so there's different. Yeah, there's different senses of faith. And we see this if we look at Paul and James. James and Paul have different definitions of faith. No, they don't. Um, 
well, even in your view, of, uh, your interpretation of James, James is talking about uh, dead faith versus saving faith. Right. But Paul is usually talking about saving faith, right? Faith that justifies so us before God. James faith. is just faith that justifies us before men. Faith is still right. something you have. It's the same definition. They're talking about focuses of it and what is true and what is false. Yeah. So some Catholic documents refer to faith as simply intellectual assent. That's called a while called you'll assent. have other. Yeah. While other Catholic authors uh, talk about fiducia as you would define it. Right. And that's the faithful trust. Now, I think that. So do you yeah. obtain salvation I, I think through that fiducia, commandments? Do you obtain salvation by what you do? Well, I think that fiducia essentially incorporates an obedience to God and his commandments. So that's can my, you be my, saved? Can you be justified by faith alone in Christ alone? It depends how you define faith alone, but just trust in what Christ has done. And you cannot I'll, I'll fall you. into mortal sin. That's my you, view. You go to Jesus in prayer because he's God in flesh who has all authority in heaven and earth. You're on your knees. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if you are or not, but you're on your knees. And for all intents and purposes, you have a faithful, honest prayer to him. And you're just talking to Jesus. And you're saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I did blah, 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 blah. I have been doing blah, 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 whatever it is. And you come to him and you just appeal to Christ. And you just ask him to save you from your sins, to forgive you of all of your sins right then and there. Would he do that? Would he forgive you right then and there? Absolutely. And the Catholic Church teaches that. If you have what's called perfect contrition, he will save you on the spot. Then, when it says you may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and observance of the commandments, then why don't they just say, all you got to do is just go to Jesus and just confess your sins to Christ and ask him to forgive you, and he will. Instead of saying, you have to go through the catechism, you got to go through these things, you got to do baptism, observance of the commandments, you have to um, recognize that the church teaches that the, the church is necessary for salvation, penance are necessary for salvation, sacraments are necessary for salvation, service of and witness of the faith are necessary, the keeping of the natural law, which paragraph 2070 says it's, it's Ten Commandments is a good reflection of it, there's necessary to keep those, paragraph 2036, uh, de- detachment from riches are necessary to keep, uh, necessary for salvation. But see, the Roman Catholic Church is contradicting even what you're saying. You're saying it's okay to just go to Jesus and just be forgiven. And I'm not saying it in a mocking sense, but just go to Christ and just ask mm-hmm. him to forgive you. you know, and yet the Roman, if that's it, if that's it, then how is it necessary that you have to be baptized, the church, penance, sacraments, service and witness of the faith, keeping the Ten Commandments and detachment from riches are necessary? Because if it's necessary, then you can't go to just Jesus and ask him to forgive you and be, be saved. Because the other things are necessary. Well, you can't have both. There are both. a couple things here. <clears throat> There, there are a couple of things here. The first thing I wanted to say is um, when the, I think that's catechism, right? When the catechism says that you need to um, have faith in Christ and follow the commandments, I guess they're defining faith in a different way, uh, essentia, plus uh, the commandments. And I think in your view, you would say that if you have both of these, you intellectually assent to God, his existence, and you follow his commandments faithfully, that would be, that would amount to fiducia, would it not? Or... 
No, uh, fiducia is a trust in. The situation I gave where someone just trusts Jesus, as we okay. have this thing of just trusting in him, that's fiducia. It's just trust in him. And that's but true it, it, faith it, in him. It has a later Notice something. Because I was setting you up without telling you I was setting you up. Okay. And I'll, I'll fill, fill you in. If you go on your... I say this the right way, you know, as you call it perfect contrition, nobody's perfect. So I don't affirm that, that statement, but for the intents and purposes, you're sitting there, you're really confessing your sins before the Lord and, and you're just trusting in him for salvation. Then you said you're, all your sins are forgiven. And that means that you're saved. That means you've attained salvation. And you just agree that that is what does it. And yet you're also trying to argue that, you attain salvation through observing commandments, but you can't have that. The Bible speaks against that very clearly. Romans 3, 28, Romans 4, uh, 5, uh, Galatians 2, 16 and 21. It speaks against those things. And so the Roman Catholic Church adds works to salvation. And therefore, it teaches a false gospel. It's a false gospel the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. You yourself admitted. That when you pray and you ask Jesus to forgive you, you're saved. And not a single commandment is obeyed, except for just believing. But that's something he gives to you, even. Philippians 1.29. No observing of the commandments is necessary. Commandments here in paragraph 26, it's in the plural. Not just to believe. Because God grants what you believe in 129. Repentance doesn't save you. Well, faith, saving faith brings with it the disposition to repent. Does it not? No. Does not regeneration do that? No. Regeneration doesn't wait, 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 wait. Regeneration does. But you said faith okay. brings with it. No. God gives you faith. God grants you faith. Philippians 1.29. He, gra- sure, sure. he grants it, and he also grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25. 20, uh, he grants that you believe and that you repent. And this is concomitant with regeneration, which he causes upon you, First Peter 1, 3, and you're born again, not of your own will, John 1, 13. So it's not about keeping commandments. You preach a works righteousness gospel. Let me ask you a question. Do you affirm, basically, that we're saved by grace through faith after all we can do? Saved by grace. Not after all, all we can do. do. No? No. We're well, saved by grace after... Uh, it depends on what you mean by faith. So obviously, if you're referring to saving faith, saving faith it brings with it the disposition to abstain from mortal sins. Now, let's say let's say I were to, let's say if somebody were, were to be justified, and if that individual, mm-hmm. say like a day after being justified, were to worship false idols, by that work, by that bad deed, that individual will fall into mortal sin and lose the grace of justification. Not simply because he broke the commandment, but because of saving problem. faith. His saving faith was 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 lost because he lost his saving faith because of what he, he disposed himself to do. So you've got a big problem. You, you do. Okay. The scriptures. Let me show you something. Sin is a legal debt, right? You break the law yes. of God is sin. First John four one. Legal debts are transferable. Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross. First Peter two twenty four, right? Well, I don't believe in penal substitution, but I'll, I'll, yeah, he, bore, he bore our sins on the cross, sure. Of course you can't believe in penal substitution because you're a Catholic. No, I'm a Catholic, of course. Yeah, absolutely. They don't believe in biblical uh, atonement. Look what it says in Colossians 2.14. It's talking about Jesus. 
having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The word, it's a three words in English, certificate of debt, is a single Greek word, kerographon. It just, that's just what it is. And that word is only used once in the entire Bible right there. And we know what it means in other contexts and other writings, but it means a handwritten IOU of legal indebtedness. Okay, no big deal. So the, he canceled out the certificate of debt. What debt was canceled on the cross? Our debt to sin? Our debt, uh, debt to sin. sin. But yes, yeah. I would agree. And incidentally, yeah. if you ask me, I can back it up, but Jesus equated sin with legal debt. I can show you the exact verses for that. So he canceled sure. the sin debt. Now, that means you and me, for example, are 2,000 years after Christ. That means our sins are future to him. Now, <clears throat> let's just say that this is talking about a bunch of about Christians who are going to heaven, and he canceled their sin debt, right? Can it be uncanceled? He canceled the sin debt we have committed so far. Where does it say so far in there? Read what it actually says, not what you want it to say. <laughs> Hello, are you still there? Yeah. I oh, sorry. It, it hiccuped. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Right. So yeah, he did cancel the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Verse thirteen. The question. Yeah. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. So it's all not just the ones up to that mm -hmm. point because you think about it. Did Jesus cancel yeah. all of the sin debt or not? All of it. Because if you're going to say that he, and this is what typically they do. This is what typically the cults do that I bring this up to. They say the exact same thing mm -hmm. that you do because they also have a works righteousness system up to that point. It doesn't say up to that point. And even if it did, which it doesn't, because it would contradict the rest of Scripture, yeah. well, then that means your salvation now depends upon you keeping the commandments. And then you're back to worse righteousness, and then that would contradict the issue of all you got to do is ask them to forgive you of all of your sins. No commandments are necessary. Your theology implodes. He forgave us all of our transgressions, canceling the sin debt at the cross. Do you used to talk about mortal sin? That means you're in and out of salvation. Oh, wait a minute. But he canceled all of our sin debt. How is it possible to have all of our sin debt canceled 2,000 years ago and you're in and out of salvation, in and out of it, be a mortal sin? How is that possible? Can I ask you, uh, can I answer by asking you another question? I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, step That's out okay. of it. No, I respect um, you because I, I you know, uh, no problem. You're not like the other guys. <laughs> I appreciate you're that. A nice guy, well, you're... so... When I try to do systematic theology, I try to read uh, not simply that text, but also texts like the Gospels, for example. And what I noticed in, for example, the Lord's Prayer is Jesus saying, you know, when you're praying the Lord, when you're praying, pray like this. And then the, the Lord's Prayer consists of us asking God to forgive us of our sins, just as we forgive those who sin against us yeah. or who trespass against us. How can God continuously forgive us every time we say the Lord's Prayer if Every single sin that we have, not just have committed, but will ever commit, 
has already been blotted out. Now you're asking the right questions. Now you're thinking. You're not thinking like a Roman Catholic. Now you're thinking according to what the text is, is leading you to. Good question. Actually, you can also go to First John 1, 8 and 9, but talks there about confessing our sins. If we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins. What's going on? In one sense, it's already clearly stated that Jesus already canceled the sin debt. In the other sense, we have, hey, you got to confess your sins. Now, generically, people have to confess their sins. But if we were to speak this to a bunch of people, of course there are people who have to confess their sins because that's what we do. And God is faithful to forgive us because he says in the, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be the name, you know, forgive us our debt. That's Luke, that's Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts. And Luke 11, 4, forgive us our sins. Jesus equates sin with legal debt. And so he's talking about what the procedure is we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be forgiving others as we have been forgiven. And he's just talking about this in a generic moral sense about our behavior and how we're supposed to be. But in this legal sense, in the penal substitutionary atonement, and it's substitutionary because you go to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, it clearly says he took our sins and bore our stripes. That's substitutionary. It's penal and it's legal because sin is a legal debt, which Matthew 6, 12, Luke 11, 4 clearly states, and Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2, 24, and he said, John 19, 30, it is finished, which is the Greek word to telestai, which is a word written on the bottom of ancient tax receipts, signifying a legal debt had been paid in full. So for you to deny legal substitutionary atonement is to go against scripture. Yeah, I know. People got the, the other theory, this other, that. This is what it says. It says he bore our sin. How is that possible if it's not legal? Sin is a legal debt. People say, well, it didn't do it. What? It says he did it. How is it possible if you don't have legal substitutionary atonement? And Isaiah 53 says it's substitutionary. He took our place. That's exactly what penal substitutionary atonement is. And in light of that, Colossians 2.14 makes perfect sense. He canceled that sin debt at the cross. Who did he cancel it for? Who did he cancel it for? Everybody ever lived? Or only the elect? In my view. Which one? Well, in my, yeah, in my view, um, well, you obviously know that I don't hold to penal substitution. So my view is that Christ, there's a sense in which he canceled it by offering us the pardon. But in my view, an unaccepted pardon is a pardon, you know, that. Oh, so if it's canceled, it's still, if it's canceled, it's also not canceled. So there's a sense in which we no longer have the obligation that, that we used to because we can accept the pardon. But if we don't accept the pardon, so it's a conditional offer. So in that sense, it's canceled. No conditional offer. So I think we have. It's not, nothing conditional about so, Colossians two fourteen. It's canceled at the cross. When's the sin debt canceled? So I, when's it canceled? When you believe? When you're baptized? When you go to church? Take communion? Or when Jesus was crucified? Yeah. So I think. So I what think the issue we find ourselves. I think the, the issue we find ourselves in is we're, we're one of us is prioritizing one set of texts over the other. So in my view, I, I don't think that you're prioritizing the texts, for example, the, the Lord's Prayer, where we ask God for forgiveness and he forgives us of our sins. I think that you're not prioritizing that enough. You're not, you're not reading it in its plain sense. When you're, but then, you're, then again, you're accusing me of not reading Colossians 2 in, in the plain sense. Uh, if you want, you can cross-examine me on those other verses. I mean, I know the references. I can quote them to you. You, you affirm yeah. he's God in flesh. 
That's John 1, yeah. 1, verse 14, Colossians 2, 9, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I can go to Zechariah 12, 10. I can go to the Old Testament if you want. I can give you references in the Old Testament. Okay, he's God in flesh. He says, ask me anything in my name, John 14, 14. People pray to him. That's one verse. You can also go to uh, Zech uh, excuse me, Zechariah 13, 9. We can go to Psalm 116, 4. They call upon the name of the Lord. That phrase is used of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And that's in reference to prayer and adoration and worship. So he's prayed to. Okay, so there's that's nothing there. He has all authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 18. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6, 20 and 25, 7, 25. We didn't know he has that authority to forgive. He's atoning sacrifice. I mean, this is it's not, it's not hard. He's the high priest that we have. There's only one priest that we need, Jesus Christ. And what you have to do is trust in him alone, not him and baptism, not him and commandments, not him and the church, not him and sacraments. You trust in Jesus alone because he said it's finished on the cross. And it means a legal debt is paid in full. Your denial of penal substitutionary atonement is just foolishness because the scriptures teach sin is breaking the law of God. First John 4, 1. Sin's a legal debt. Jesus said so. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. In, the, in our Father in heaven. He said that. He, Paul uses a legal debt term about sin being canceled. Colossians 2.14, this is penal. This is all penal. John 19.30, it is finished. To tell us die, a legal statement. This is penal. Substitutionary is the very fact of Isaiah 53, 4-6. He clearly says he took our stripes. He bore what was our, due to us. That's substitutionary. For you to deny penal substitutionary stuff is just simply foolishness because the scriptures teach it. That's what the biblical position is. There's no other way he can bear our sins. If there is no legal transference of sin debt, how does he bear our sins in his body on the cross? Do you have any idea how that's possible? Well, I'm sympathetic toward Anselm's idea that the sense in which he bore our sins on the cross is not that they were imputed to him, but that his act, his uh, meritorious act of dying innocently as the God-man was meritorious enough to cancel the debt we had to sin. So it isn't that. That makes no sense. It doesn't make, sense. Make, make any sense because sin exactly. requires a penalty. It's a law. The wages in his death, Romans 6, 23. If Anselm is saying that it's just his meritorious life that cancels sin debt, forget that. That's not true. The Bible itself says without the shedding of blood is no forgiveness of sins. You go to Leviticus 17, 11, which is referenced in, in I believe he was 922. I may be wrong on that one. The forgiveness of sins is necessary. The shedding of blood, death, is the means by which we have that. If Anselm is saying that his perfect life cancels sin debt, Anselm's a jerk. Now, I know Anselm's a super smart guy, but in that area, he just blew it. And people with great minds, they blow it. Because his perfect life is what did that? Where did you get that in the Bible? No, he canceled our sin debt at the cross. That's when it was canceled. Canceled by the death of Christ. Well, he, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Anyways, um, so in my view, he canceled the sin debt. So he was punished, but not by God. So he offered his punishment, his, his suffering as a means oh, of satisfaction. What was the it, payment it, of sin is you, death. The wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three. The soul that sin shall die, Ezekiel 18, 4. Did he die? Yes, that's what the requirement of the law was. So his death was that payment. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's where he canceled the sin debt in his death on the cross. Colossians 2.14, right? Yes. Welcome to penal substitutionary atonement. You just <laughs> affirmed the fundamentals of it. Yeah. No, I'm asking you specific questions. Sin's a legal debt. Yeah. You just bore our sin. Sin, legal debts could be transferred. There's no other way. I ask you, how is it transferred? How did he bear it? And you told me Anselm said, well, his victorious holy life is what paid for it. No. I said, how did he bear our sin? That's, a, you didn't, that's not Anselm's answer that you gave isn't answering the question. How did he bear our sin? What does that mean to bear our sin? <clears throat> if my child um, throws a rock through a neighbor's window, I bear the debt. It becomes mine. I'm the father. You know, my mm-hmm. eight-year-old kid, you know, kind of thing. But in, even in your view, in your example, you're not literally guilty. Yes, I so am you're literally taking responsibility, guilty. You're taking responsibility for it, but you're not literally guilty. It wasn't oh, you who oh, actually I, did it. Oh, I, I meant, okay, sorry. In the rock thing. Right, I'm responsibility. Sure. I didn't actually do it, but that debt is now transferred to me. I'm legally You make satisfaction for it. You yes. make satisfaction for it. By so it's an payment. analogy. Yep. In my view, Paul's offering an analogy, and, and no analogy. This is an analogy in Colossians two fourteen. He doesn't literally have sin in his body. He had the debt of sin transferred to him. It's legal. See, even then, I I, I wouldn't argue that's a literal. Absolutely, he's, he's not speaking literally. Yes, is, he bore our in sin view, in his body in the cross. How else is that possible? Only if it's legal debt. Legal debts can be transferred. And Jesus says, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. He equates them together. He said, to tell us that. I believe it was it's a debt. legal statement. It's a legal statement, he was saying. I do agree that it was, it was legal, but it was satisfied not by imputing sin to him. It was satisfied by him mm-hmm. offering his body as a gift to God, which made reparation for the, for the, uh, for the sins we've Good. committed. Good. His death, yeah. sacrifice on the Christ, oh, is what cleanses us. While he's on the cross, Absolutely. our sin, the sin of the elect, was transferred to him. Now think about this. The elect, the chosen of God, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. The elect whom God chose and gave to the Son, John 6, 37 through 40. That he gave them to the Son to, to uh, atone for. Jesus only atoned for and canceled the sin debt of the ones given to him by the Father. Period. That makes perfect sense. There's no problem here. Absolutely no problem here. It makes perfect sense with the text. And then this mortal sin idea invented by the Roman Catholic Church just doesn't have any traction at all. So I think a lot of this also depends on – so the assumption of penal substitution. And I I would actually agree with you that if you assume penal substitution, you're also going to assume something like uh, the perseverance of all the saints, for example. I think that goes hand in hand with penal substitution. And a lot of Protestants would disagree with you there, but I think that that's the most consistent view that penal substitution inevitably leads to the idea that there is a limited atonement and then all saints will persevere to the end. But uh, I happen to of think course. that that idea isn't biblical, right? So I think well, wait, that one last there's a lot of evidence that Christians do fall into Lim- sin and do fall Lim- out of salvation. I'll prove limited atonement here. That no, He didn't bear everybody's sins. And I know i got to use the restroom and then uh, Andrew wants to say something. Look in the text. God speaking, therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli, and the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Jesus did not atone for him, for that house. 
did not offer, didn't make any satisfaction for them at all. Nothing. That proves that it was not for everybody. But at any rate, Andrew wanted to say something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple things. I mean, um, originally the discussion was was on the church and tradition, right? So you you would hold that the church, the magisterium, and scripture are equal in authority. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to read to you for, first. Um, from the Catholic Catechism, that's, and I'm, I'm actually getting this from a great book. I wrote it. What do they believe? Um, <laughs> shameless book, shameless book. But, uh, I, but that's just, it, it really is my quick reference to look these things up. So, uh, Catechism, paragraph 82 says, as a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her uh, her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored as equal sen- sentiments of devotion and reverence. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Would you agree, when speaking of the Magisterium in paragraph 100, it says, the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope, to the bishops, to the communion of him. Do you agree with that? There's a sense in which I agree with that, but I think that you can interpret the Bible correctly in certain areas without the magisterium, but ultimately the magisterium has the best interpretation. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying that ultimately the magisterium would, would have the final authority to script to over scripture then they have the overriding authority. So if there is yeah, something so, that the church teaches authoritatively, yeah. Yeah. So you see, you actually have a dilemma now. If the Catholic church is true and it teaches that scripture, the magisterium and tradition are equal in authority, yet they also teach that they are the final authority on interpreting scripture then the magisterium are above scripture. They're not equal in authority because they are the final authority. You you had said scripture is the final authority, but ultimately, according to the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is the final authority. Right? Because if, if, if something, if there is any organization or person that's the final authority on interpreting scripture, then what they say is a greater authority to, than Scripture is. So here's the thing that Matt was trying to express to you. When you look to the church and tradition and not Scripture, and this is the issue that John Huss had, this is the issue Martin Luther had, is that the church puts themselves in the position of an authority. And they claim that authority, but they claim it of themselves. And they try to say Scripture gives them the authority, but here's the problem they say they're equal in authority to Scripture, but if they are the final interpreters of Scripture, then they are a greater authority than the Scriptures. Do you see that? So I think that there's a sense in which there's a a system of checks and balances because 
the magisterium just can't say anything. Everything that the magisterium says has to be in some way tempered by the tradition of the church. So the magisterium can never say anything. Um, you see, they don't interpret all tradition. Yeah, but but the point the point is is that if there's a difference between scripture and the magisterium, who's the final authority? It's not the scripture. It's the magisterium, is it not? Because they're the interpreters. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's, we, so there's, would you believe that we could become God one day? That we could, that we'd be God? No. No, you don't. Okay. If the magisterium taught something like that, would it be an error? Hypothetically, yeah. Hypothetically. Because it would contradict let me, tradition let me, and scripture. Let me read from. The Magisterium, Catholic Catechism, paragraph 460. I got this from Matt Slick when we were on an apologetics cruise. I, I don't know why I didn't see this. This, this is what you, the Catholic Church in an authoritative statement has said, okay? In the question of the Son of Man became flesh, why did the Word become flesh? That's the question being answered. Paragraph 460 says the Word became flesh to make us quote, partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the word became man, that the Son of God became Son of Man, so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a Son of God. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. That is the magisterium. So you you just confirmed earlier that if they taught what they teach, they would be wrong. That's Mormonism is, is what that actually is. No, so that's so... The church, when they, so there's a lot of things to say here. A lot of church fathers actually made this exact same claim. So St. Irenaeus, for example, made a similar claim. St. Athanasius, those are, for those example. Those are quotes from the church fathers. Yeah. Yeah, those are, those are quotes from the church fathers. So Athanasius, church, who's very famous. can be wrong. Can the Catholic church be wrong? The church fathers could be wrong. Yes, I agree. The church fathers could be wrong. Can there's the a, Catholic absolutely. church, when interpreting scripture and giving doctrine, can it be wrong? Well, there's several questions here. Uh, I think that that quote is actually true. We might but become we gods, but not in the, not in the se same sense that God is God. So when the church fathers said that, they're not saying that we can ontologically be the same as God, but that we can become divinized. And this is actually referring to uh, something Peter says in one of his epistles, that we become partakers of the divine nature. But they're not literally saying that we can become ontologically God, that we can somehow bridge the infinite chasm between creator and creature. That's not at all what the church fathers say. And so when the catechism quotes that, that's not what they're saying. Well, yeah, it just but, means that we're able to see God face to face, unlike but that's the situation we have saying. on earth. It's, that's not what this is saying, because if you look at that quote, and that's why I asked you up front, if this if the magisterium taught this, would they be wrong? You said yes. And yet they're saying that we are sharers in his divinity. Okay. We are co-heirs with Christ. We, we are co-heirs with Christ. That we would be men made gods. 
it is not talking to shares in, in let me interject in, really quickly because it's, it's worth notice, noting something just really fast nothing in the catechism before or after clarifies that it's not saying you actually become gods it leaves it open it just quotes these things and leaves it at that that's a serious problem go ahead yeah so I mean, the church fathers too well, yeah but the church fathers can be an error and have been plenty of times. But when you say that this is something that is a greater authority than Scripture, because it is the interpreter of Scripture, I asked you up front, if the church taught this, would they be in error? And you said, hypothetically, yes, well, they do teach this. And so... With an equivocation, because you know, I was assuming, you said God, you didn't say gods, with the plural. So I was assuming you're referring to the God, like well, ontologically, the, the sharing, God. Sharing divinity is the God. We, do, we we may be inheritors. There's only one divine nature. That's God. Huh? There's only one divine nature. That's God. So we can't yeah. become divine. See, see the way. fact that we share with divinity is if he's indwelling us, we participate in that. And that's, a, that's as close as we can get. But yeah, it does not say yeah, any clarification. Yeah, yeah. In paragraph we may inherit God's glory or the uh, glorified nature. Okay. But we are not being divine. We're not sharing in his divinity. That's what that verse says, is that we share in his divinity. And, and so I, I'm saying this, you know, because we're, we're going to end up wrapping up the show because we, we go about two hours. We will have an after show. If you, and and I did put the link in here. Um, I'll drop it in again for, for you. And, and, you know, we have an after show done by the, the council. You're more than welcome to come and join and, and discuss. Um, and and we, we keep going there a little bit longer. But the thing that, you know, I, I want you to see is Matt tried to show you about penal substitution. And what the scriptures say, what, what I'm saying is if the Catholic church is true, then it's false that you have no, no other choice because if the Catholic church is true, when they say that scripture is equal in authority to the magisterium and tradition, and yet at the same time, they say that the magisterium and tradition are the final authority over scripture because that's the interpreters of it. Anything that be, is the final authority to interpret is greater than the thing being interpreted. And therefore, if they claim they're true and they claim that the scriptures equal to the church, yet they set themselves up as above the scriptures. And, and, and this is why, you know, as Matt said earlier, my heart breaks for you. I mean, it really does. It's, you know, you're, you are a very likable guy. Okay. But, you're deceived and you know, it, it's, it's something that this deception could lead you to an eternity in a lake of fire. And that's why I plead with you to consider it because the Catholic church is setting themselves up as the authority. It's a circular argument when they say they're the authority and you look to them to prove that they are the authority. They claim the scriptures don't support it. And in fact, if they're the authority that they claim, then the scriptures is not the authority that it claims. So I want you to consider that. I want you to consider that there's things that Matt shared with you about substitution that are essential because Christ's death on that cross, that's when it was paid. Therefore, it can't have anything to do with your works and anything that you do because it was already paid on the cross. In fact, let me just share with this one thing before we look to close out. And I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ, Almighty God, 
who came to earth to die on a cross. That's how severe sin is, that God himself had to pay that fine. That's pretty serious. If any man stands before God and says, I know you you came to, to die, and it was an eternal death, you being an eternal being, paid it for once in time, all for eternity, and yet look at my good works, look at what I did. That is the most disingenuous thing any man could ever do. In fact, in Revelations, in the book of Revelation, it says that the the there's two books that people are going to be judged by. The Lamb's Book of Life, those who've, who God has, has brought to repentance, and their names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. And though the others that are judged to eternity in the lake of fire, it is called the Book of Works. It's the very works people think are going to set them free that is going to condemn them. Because compared to what Jesus Christ did, compared to that, none of our works are anything. In fact, Isaiah says they're dirty rags. They're filthy rags. Technically, in the Hebrew, it's a menstrual rag. And that's why it's so serious. And Matt, you know, tried to encourage you with this because it is, it is serious. And I know you want to hold to the church. But when you were talking with him about Mary, you see, the Catholic Church puts, replaces Christ with Mary. And, and, actually has where she has to be almost divine. Hear all the prayers of all the, the people everywhere in the world. She has to be omniscient. She has to be omnipresent to be able to do those things. To be able to, to that Christ submits to Mary. Think about this. For Christ, Almighty God, to submit to Mary, not only does the church set themselves above Scripture, they set Mary above God. And that's some serious stuff. Okay? Now, we're going to close out. I do, you know, I encourage you to come back. We can keep the discussion going. We can join in the after show done by the council. Um, But I do want you to think about where you're going to spend eternity because you're not going to go to a place of purgatory where you're going to work off sins. Sin, if you read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5, works are not going to save you. It, It doesn't matter if you want to misinterpret James, the reality is, look at the clear passages that that we have in Ephesians and Titus, and you, you need to come to repentance. All right? I just want you to think about that. All right, we appreciate you coming in. I know um, there's been some other Catholics that wanted to said they might come in next week. Um, let me close with this, uh, Matt. I shared with this a little bit with you, and so this will be an open challenge to. Uh, any Roman Catholics out there, I got this message today. Um, Matt Slick has lost every debate against Catholic apologists. Tim Staples, Mark Bianco, I probably mispronounced it. Robert Synergist, I probably mispronounced that one too. Uh, Matt, for more than a year, refused to respond to traditional Catholic monks, monk brother Peter Diamond's Debate challenge on the topic of justification. Catholic apologist Jerry Metatics, um, I mispronounced that, uh, also challenged Matt to an official one-on-one debate months ago. Matt has not accepted his challenge, um, so he he basically wanted to set up a challenge. Well, here's the thing: if you guys want to set up a challenge. Matt will be happy to debate you on these things. I think you did have a discussion, Matt, or hang out with Jerry. But let me be really clear. Matt Slick has not been avoiding debates on Roman Catholicism. And what I said to this person is very clear. Matt's wife went through major heart surgery. 
then had complications afterwards, has been in and out of ER rooms for, unfortunately, the better part of this year. And I am sorry if those Roman Catholics out there think that Matt should put debating you guys above his wife. I will stand by the fact that his wife should be a higher priority than debating your Roman Catholicism. Now, this isn't to to you uh, um, here, um, you know, Adele. <laughs> this is more to these guys who've been challenging Matt and why he won't take it. Well, if you want, you can come on in here. And we can set up a formal debate and you can debate the issues. That is one of the things that Apologetics Live is set up for. But I will tell you that I get real upset with people that want to say Matt is avoiding the debate because he has the nerve to care for his wife who could have died on an operating table. Okay. She almost uh, did. So, huh? She almost, she almost did. did. I know dissected and the only time it happened before in 25 years of surgery the doctor said one time it happened before and um the patient died my wife has uh, a very rare connective tissue disorder called smad3 literally right now i'm upstairs right now downstairs she's downstairs in pain her back is hurting her so much and her best friend that she grew up with flew in a couple days ago staying here and they can't even go out because my wife is in such pain and it's not like she's debilitating, you know, but my wife sits and rocks uh, when she's suffering and she's rocking and um, she's had her gallbladder out. She's got arthritis. She's got scoliosis. It, I have been out of commission and because of this and uh, here I am up here, you know, but, and, uh, thing, and, and this is the thing. I mean, yeah. look, if people want to sit there, you know, <laughs> if you're going to sit there and say that, these debates should be more important to Matt than his wife. You're wrong. Okay. Flat out. You're wrong. All right. He should, he has a responsibility to care for his wife. Now his wife is starting to do a little bit better. We've set these things up. If you would like to set up and you want to set up here, a debate, you can reach out to me. It's easy to do. You can go to strivingfraternity.org. There's a contact page. You can contact me there. You can email me. You, you can email me at carms, andrew at carm.org. You can email me there. We will set up the debate right here. We have two hours set aside. As long as we all agree on what the topic is. Yeah, well, we're going to work out the topic. That's where that's why we email it. If it's going to be a formal debate, there's going to be a formal topic that we work out. But to, to you know, but Matt hasn't been avoiding it. Okay, I'm I'm speaking for Matt now. I know Jerry Matitix had uh, some problems with his wife, health reasons, and he bowed out. I don't know if you guys know that that happened. He bowed yeah. out for a while. No one's going to give him a hard time if he does. He has a responsibility to care for his wife. So, you know, so I just wanted to, to close that. If folks want to reach out to us, go ahead, reach out to, to me. We'll set up the debate. It doesn't have to be on Roman Catholicism. If there's other things you want to have a formal debate, we'll try to work it out here. Um, now, next week, what we hope to do uh, for next week is we're going to hopefully deal with, uh, at least in the beginning, not the whole show, but we're going to have someone come in and, with Matt and discuss the topic of Molinism. Uh, Tyler Villa has recently done a podcast on it, has a very interesting, I think, view that's, that 
Matt has studied Molinism quite a bit, and I think it'll be an interesting back and forth as the two of them dig into it more. So that's going to be what we're going to start the show with. Then we're going to do uh, open Q&A. So just to let you guys know, Matt Slick has a regular radio show. You can listen to it on the radio or on podcast form. It's called Matt Slick Live. You can search for Matt Slick on your podcast app or search for Christian Apologetics Research uh, Ministry on your podcast app. That's five days a week, Monday through Friday, one hour long. If you want to get more of my podcast, The Rap Report, it's Rap with two Ps, Andrew Rapport's Rap Report, there's a two-minute daily. Even Matt, with his ADD, can handle two minutes, I think. But... <laughs> I can handle two minutes of most people, but you, yeah. that's a whole 120 seconds. So, so two minutes every day, Monday through Friday, uh, Saturdays, we do a wrap up typically. And then on Sundays, we drop a one hour episode. We're actually going to break those into two separate podcasts soon so that you'll have the dailies separate from the weeklies, but you can download and listen to rap report. This podcast or this show becomes a podcast and you can search for apologetics live apologetics live and that's the podcast this is an apologetics live and the rap report are part of the christian the uh part of the the christian podcast community and that's a community of podcasters that you can, if you're a podcaster and out there, you can join our Facebook group. Uh, but we're going to be hosting different podcasts uh, like this one for you to get a, a plethora of good, solid podcasts. So those are some resources for you guys. Uh, you know, Ariel, I hope that you come back. You, you, great questions. I think it was great dialogue. Really appreciate that. I hope you think about some of the stuff uh, that Matt and I shared. And if you guys want to join the after show put on by the council, um, I will drop that link into YouTube after Matt gets in there so that he can get in. So uh, we I'll go in right now. So you go get over there, okay? Yep. And so we thank you guys for, for staying tuned in. Make sure to share the Apologetics Live, both in video and podcast form on all the social media. We look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good one.